morning, everybody. My name is Christine, and as Shree mentioned, it's from the reading today is from Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by, washing, by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will, will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Uh, thanks, Christine. Thanks very much for that. And today we've got a really special treat. Roger's going to be preaching for us, which we're used to, of course, but today he's going to be joined uh, by Nikki, so they're going to work in tandem and uh, <laughs> get away. And so we know how exciting, and, and actually I have to write this list down in case I forgot it, but they're intelligent and funny and enjoyable. I'm just joking. They really are those things. And so we are <laughs> we're expecting a real treat this morning from them, and I think we need to give them a round of applause. Can we do that? Come on. Let's give them a round of applause. Shireen, we need that other mic. So we've had quite a fun morning. Hey, Nick's. Um, why don't we tag team some of the things that happened just this morning? So we've already had one uh, vomit in our house. Yes, one vomit, one birthday party. One birthday. Or birthday, should yeah. I say. We had the birthday party yesterday. We had the birthday this morning, so we've opened presents. We, we have a hoverboard that sings songs from yes. the birthday. That was another highlight. And we've got ready for a sermon together <laughs> this morning. So it's been an eventful uh, morning, to say the least. It's not and even 10 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, we feel like we've had two days in the first few hours. Um, but it is lovely to be able to team with Nix and to preach today on a, a really easy passage of Scripture, right? When a passage starts with, wives, submit to your husbands, <laughs> you know it's going to be easy. I literally heard someone behind me going, this is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> Who was that? <laughs> I went, oh my gosh, what are we doing? But uh, we've got some interesting photos. Talk us through those next. So uh, we have our wedding photo to show you guys. This is us, little babies, 12, nearly 12 years ago. And um, to be honest, we still feel like those babies. And um, some of you might be going, yes, you are babies. Why are you doing the marriage talk if you've only been married for 12 years? So thankfully that we're not doing this marriage talk primarily from our own experience, but um, we're going to be diving into the text. And we're very grateful that we have that. Always nice to, um, it feels like God chooses the moments when my parents or Nix's parents pitch up uh, to come visit. So when we're talking on marriage, parents of 47 years worth of marriage listening in. So we could hand the mics over to them, but I didn't give them enough prep. Um, but uh, today, thinking of marriage, I found myself just kind of looking across culture and even looking at the, the words of songs and realizing that we're in such a, a weird 
world when it comes to marriage. You know, on the one side, you've got these voices that are essentially going, don't get married. Don't do nothing to tie yourself down. You would be a fool to connect yourself to one person for the rest of your life. I think of Destiny's Child. I don't know how old this song is, but um, question: Tell me what you think about me. I sing, buy my. Sing it. Oh, <laughs> I'll read it. You sing it. Listen. I buy my own diamonds. I buy my own rings. Only ring your. Only ring your Sally. I'm feeling lonely when it's all over. Please get up and leave Destiny's Child, independent woman. She doesn't want to tie herself down. Why would you do that? Why connect yourself to one person for the rest of your life? When you're uh, done, get out, find your own way. I might need some romance, but I definitely don't need lifelong commitment. There's the sense of actually we're most happy when we're free from commitments. However... Our culture is massively confused because we've got Ed Sheeran on the other side. And he says, well, I found a woman stronger than anyone I know. She shares my dreams. I hope that someday I'll share her home. There's this longing to find the one, that deep sense of intimacy and romance that will just carry you forever and ever. And if you find your so-called other half, you have found bliss, you found happiness, you will never, ever battle again. Ed Sheeran will sing you into your happy future. There is something about this, but, but, but it's pretty worth thinking. Our culture is messing with us. In one side, it's have no uh, commitments. On the other side, it's find the commitment that will satisfy your deepest needs. Um, before we kind of get more into this, this passage of Scripture and this text, a few things to just note, and some of us are really into, I think we've really enjoyed getting a little bit into the background of um, the Ephesians, where, as we've re read a little bit more about Ephesus and how this letter was received, and um, especially for this portion, um, it is really important to remember that this letter was written, and it was written to a whole church. And um, we've read this passage that just, you know, it's speaking to husbands and wives, but just near this passage, uh, Paul also speaks about children and parents and slaves and masters. And um, Paul would write this letter, and he expected that it would be read out aloud in a similar context like this. The whole letter would have been read to the whole group of people. And he wouldn't say, okay, now I'm going to read to the married, so married, you can listen. Now I'm going to read to the kids, the kids can listen. Now I'm going to read to the slaves, everyone else go out. Everyone would have heard this, and it's the same for us today. You might be going, I wonder why this is important for me. I'm not married, I'm divorced, I'm single. This is important for all of us, because what Paul is showing us in this passage of Scripture and what we learn from, from this is that we're actually offered a new grid with which to view relationships. And it's the kingdom way. It's the upside-down way. It's where um, submission and service and humility equals greatness, and it's the Jesus way. The Jesus way, Jesus who washed feet. Jesus, who welcomed women and who dignified children, two things that would have been unfathomable at the time. And, you know, there's, there's various um, opinions about portion of Scripture like this, and whatever um, opinions there are, what is agreed upon is that this passage of Scripture would have been um, kind of received as revolutionary at the time. And for us, it seems very um, dated, and some of the words are actually offensive. It would have been offensive at the time, but for the opposite reason of why it offends us. And it is widely accepted that this, this really was actually incredibly dignifying to women, and then earlier on or later on, when he right near this passage, he speaks to children, 
and to slaves. To us, we don't hear it like this. But in that day, in a letter like this, where there is a group of people from all different uh, kind of stages of life, the, the oppressed, the minority, the submissive group of people, they wouldn't have been even addressed. So the letter basically would have just been to the men or just to the fathers. Here, Paul addresses the women. He addresses children. He addresses slaves. And even more than that, he addresses them first. So actually placing kind of the last first, which is really important. So just keep that in mind as we kind of dig deeper into this. Brilliant. So we've, we've got this lovely piece of context. Remember, he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And remember also, if you're a single person, maybe you're uh, not married, maybe you've been married. Um, here we've got a fascinating uh, kind of three key characters. As you're looking through the book of Ephesus or the church in Ephesus, uh, the most key personality in the whole of Scripture, especially the New Testament, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. Then you've got Paul who writes the letter to the Ephesians. And then you've got Paul who writes a letter to Timothy that we looked at last week. Spot anything in common about these guys? Never got married. They never got married. And so you've got this amazing sense, if you're single here, that there is not an idolatry of marriage. There's not these people who are writing in a culture similar to ours where, you know, Ed Sheeran is just kind of dominating their view. He's coming in in a revolutionary way, and he's going to present a picture of marriage. He's going to try to show to marrieds how they ought to conduct themselves, what the gospel says to marriage, not what Ed says or not what Destiny's Child says, but, but what does the gospel say to marriage? And so that's what we're going to do for the next while. And yes, we will look at the elephant in the room, the big S word, submission. We'll look at that. We will dig into it. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised that it's not as bad as it looks. It's not as terrifying as it looks. And in many ways, as Nix has spoken, it's actually going to be rather liberating. So we're going to look at a vision for marriage, as Paul uh, speaks about it, the values of marriage, and then the power for marriage. So if you get to the first two and you're going, I don't know if I could ever pull this off, there's some secret source, there's some real power that's going to be given to us by Paul as we get there. So should we get stuck in? Let's, Let's look, go. firstly, at a vision for marriage. And the first thing it seems like Paul speaks about when he talks about having a vision for our marriages is he talks about, in this very first verse, verse 25, husbands, love your wives. It seems like Paul has a vision for marriage that is based on friendship. He carries on, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And Jesus modeled his love for the church when he was with his disciples. And how did Jesus model his love for them? Well, in John chapter 15, he says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. I don't call you servants, I call you friends. And so this deep sense of love between a husband and a wife is that first and foremost, you get a vision for your marriage that says, I need a friend. Marriage is about friendship. It's about deep, loving friendship. It's about getting really old and still laughing at each other's terrible jokes. It's about a deep sense, and he carries on actually in, uh, I think it's, it's just later, he talks about verse 26, of washing each other with the word. Now, he's using this double word play here because he's, he's interested in speaking about the intimacy of marriage. And he talks about the fact that a husband and a wife, not just a husband or a wife, a husband and a wife, wash each other with the word of God. 
But he also assumes that somehow in marriage, there really is a washing of one another. I don't know if you've ever washed someone's body. It's an incredibly intimate thing. Whether it's a, a person who's unwell or whether it's just a sense of service and love, washing someone's body is deeply intimate. And so he says, husbands, love your wives. There should be a friendship love. There should be a vision for your marriage that is more than getting children or just looking like the Joneses or having a partner to do life with or somebody that you can pull the funds with so that you can do some great stuff in the future. Your vision for your marriage needs to be friendship, learning to actually love each other. 1 Corinthians 13, I think, is one of the, the power passages around friendship. And I think one of my favorite little parts is when he says, love always trusts. Now you're looking at me with real squonky eyes, because how does love always trust? I mean, it's, it's virtually impossible. Andy Stanley talks about this wonderful thing when he talks about love always trusting. He says that in every relationship, you get to a fork in the road where somebody does something that is potentially really annoying. They they. they, they they said they would be there at quarter past, and they're still not there at half past. Now, there's, there's two things that you can do when you're in this little fork in the road. When it's half past, and there's something going on in your brain, and there is an option. You're thinking, I could be mad with this person because they're late, and they said they'd be there. Or I could consider, just consider this for a moment. This is what friendship is. I could believe the best of them. I could begin to think, oh, they must have had a hectic day. Oh my gosh. That, 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 there's, there must be some reason why he is running late. I'm putting you as the person who's filled with grace. It's never and me. I'm never late. Exactly. Exactly. She's never been late. We're never in the car all as a family waiting for next. It's never happened. Ever. She doesn't put on makeup. She doesn't need to. She's just beautiful as it is. So we all I just, just... woke up like this. <laughs> But what are you doing when you're sitting in the car? You're going, she's got a reason. She's got a reason. And I trust the best. And there is something about repeatedly believing the best of a person versus always going to the she always, she never. He happens to always do this. There's an ability to start telling yourself a story. And as you do that, you give, way, you give away the way of love and you hold on to the way of resentment, and friendship begins to leak. So that's the, the first vision, is, is Paul tends to say, husbands, love your wife. He says, the vision for marriage, if you want to create a vision for your marriage, is that you start with friendship. You imagine yourself in five decades' time laughing at each other's bad jokes, because that's where you're heading. And the second vision for marriage is to prioritize holiness over happiness, Carrying on from verse 25, husbands, love your wives, as Rog read, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So sadly, many of us do know of marriages that have come to an end for a myriad of reasons, but how many times, or even relationships, how many times have you heard someone say, it ended because they just don't make me happy anymore? I'm just not happy. And in a culture where our personal happiness is of the utmost importance, then the best thing you can do is walk away if you're not happy. But actually what we've shown in the scriptures is that prioritizing holiness over happiness 
is actually what God had in mind when he designed marriage. Marriage was never designed ultimately for our happiness. And, and putting that pressure, that kind of pressure on a, a person, a spouse, to provide your ultimate happiness is a pressure that they're going to buckle under and will disappoint you in because they can never provide that. But actually what God wants is he wants to make us more holy, more like him. We call this formation. We often use that word, becoming more like Jesus in his attainable attributes, things like more caring, more loving, more gracious, more kind. So all everyone's like nodding. They say, I wish my spouse was more like all of those things. But actually, what God has in mind is um, to make, for us to take our own holiness seriously, not only looking at our spouse and hoping that they become more holy. Um, but, and, you know, often we say there's no silver bullet. Sometimes there is a silver bullet, and this might be one of those silver bullets. And we've seen that when this starts to click in people's minds, that marriages can be changed sometimes on the spot. We saw about three years ago where there was a couple that we knew whose marriage was on the brink of, of ending. And the penny dropped on this thing, that marriage isn't primarily about me finding happiness in this person and in this relationship, but it was actually designed as God's curriculum for my holiness and my discipleship and my formation, as well as me partnering with God in my spouse's and we literally saw, and it was, interestingly, it wasn't both of those people at the same time realizing that, because I think that's what we often think. If we both change our mind, then I'm going to do well because you're thinking differently. One of them went first, the penny drop for one person. Marriage is about holiness, not primarily happiness. A beautiful quote from Tim Keller about this, this uh, kind of vision of marriage. He says, within this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, see, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in, in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it here on earth. But now, look at you. Wow. The beauty of marriage when you're not preoccupied with yourself, that sense of actually, what if, what if my flaws, not intended, not leveraged to make her more holy, are God's gift to actually transform next? What if her flaws, what if her life, albeit imperfect, and we have had 12 years of non-perfection. I don't know any marriage that is perfect. It doesn't exist. But what if all those struggles, what if all those realities, what if all those little conflicts, what if all those frustrations, what about all those irritations, what if they were gifts to transform me into a person more like Jesus? What if I looked at every single one of those and began to realize, wow, I'm partnering with God to be able to one day say, wow, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth. And look, now look at you. What a thought. What an amazing privilege to partner in that way. 
And uh, this beautiful thing of prioritizing holiness over happiness, when we're prioritizing happiness, we've got a magnifying glass, and you can almost picture that. You're kind of looking at your spouse, going at all the things that they're doing that are making you unhappy. When we're prioritizing holiness, we lift up a mirror to ourselves. We say, God, show me what I can change in myself to make me more like your son. And with all these priorities that we're mentioning today, when we prioritize the first one rightly, the second one is almost a byproduct of that. So happiness does follow holiness. When we prioritize holiness, happiness can follow. Not immediately. It's not like a switch, but sometimes it does. So while we're in this sort of vision for marriage, I want to just double click. Nix and I kind of had some thoughts around this and, and this this picture that Paul is painting is that he's painting a picture of friendship. He's painting a picture of who we're becoming, the, the person that's becoming a little more holy. And it's, it's so countercultural. It's not just countercultural in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. It's countercultural today. We're looking for happiness. And yes, we wouldn't mind a friend if it works out, but, but it's, it's kind of like Paul's painting a vision. He's casting a vision for what marriage could be. And we just thought for a moment, we've been watching marriages throughout, and we thought we'd love to just um, encourage you to almost run your marriage uh, through a grid and ask a couple of questions. Um, I've heard uh, one person talk about it as reverse engineering your life or reverse engineering your marriage, where you basically go, where are we heading? If, if we're heading towards friendship, if we're heading towards holiness, the person we're becoming, then what about we reverse engineer? We go, if we're going there, what are the things we need to do today to actually get there? Because so many of us struggle to draw lines from today to there. And we don't have practices and habits today that shape us moving towards tomorrow. And the Bible's just filled with those kinds of things where it's coaching people in the today. So I want to just ask you, and we're just going to run through a bunch of things that I think could be helpful. Firstly, prayer. I think prayer is such a crucial one. Have you got a vision for the prayer life that you want to have as a couple? They often say people, uh, couples that pray together stay together. There's a sense that prayer and adventuring with one another in prayer is one of the most powerful ways to, to live out your marriage. Or what about parenting? We're going to cover that next week and create a vision for parenting. But how often we find parents, uh, married couples, aren't on the same page. They don't have the same vision for where they're going as parents. And so there's this sense of always tagging each other. You go this way. This is what we want for our kids. No, no, we're going this way. To begin to reverse engineer your vision for the kind of parents you want to be and the kind of kids you want to raise. Um, what about finances? What have we got next? Six. Uh, okay, I wasn't sure if you'd put this one up. What you kind wanted of me to take it out because his parents are here. But yeah, yeah, I was going to say, important. I'm so glad the talk's not on sex. My parents are here. But here it is. Nikki snuck it in. But, um, you know, statistically, they say that married sex is the best sex. Literally, statistically, the most satisfied people are married people. And, uh, and we... Uh, I think it's because there is a sense of growing intimacy, of learning one another. And uh, I think it's really important, however, that you begin to have a vision for the kind of intimacy you want to have, the kind of lifestyle you're going to live so that you can actually enjoy that type of intimacy. And then finances. I'm going to hand over to Nick's after this one. But you'll see that Paul preaches in, into this and he says, do you know that you're a one flesh union? And I've bumped into people all over the show that just insinuate that basically what she earns is hers and what I earn is mine, and sometimes we need to pull stuff together. And there's just no mention of that in the Scriptures. The Scriptures seem to say that when you get bound together, everything that you have 
is each other's. It lives in one pot, and you, you steward it, and you stir it together for the glory of God and the good of the purpose that He's given you to have. And I really want to just encourage you to create a one unified financial vision for where you're heading as a married couple. Awesome. I'm going to carry on with that list. The next one is having a vision uh, about communication and conflict, actually talking about how you want to talk about stuff and actually um, kind of being on the same page about how we're going to have these kind of conversations. One of the really um, cool lines that someone shared with us a few months ago was when you're talking conflict and communicating about hard stuff, um, a wonderful angle to take is share fears and emotions rather than frustrations and irritations. Fears and emotions are way less offensive where you're pointing the fingers and saying, you did this, I'm frustrated with you, I'm irritated with this. Whereas sharing the fears and emotions, it's actually a way more vulnerable thing. You're saying, this is what I'm experiencing. You're not primarily pointing the finger. Very early on in our marriage, someone taught us the lesson of keep short accounts. And honestly, it's been so helpful for us, and we hope that it helps you as well. It's one of those things that rather, um, instead of letting small things build up, and then you know what it's like, three days later you explode, and you end up fighting about the thing that you're not even really fighting about or arguing about something. And it's actually been the buildup of the last few weeks or whatever. Actually, when something happens, have the conversation then. For us, it often looks like, ah, can I quickly have a short account? We had one yesterday. Am I allowed to share what happened? I can't remember what it was. Go for it. <laughs> it was my fault. That's why I'm willing. I laughed condescendingly at Nick's at a thing. It was like, actually, I wasn't meaning to, but it came across like I was condescending and I kind of laughed or scoffed, which might be a better word, at what she did. She pulled me aside, said, can we have a short account? I don't like it when you do that. I said, I'm sorry, you're right. And we moved on. There you Short go, account. yeah. Whereas if we hadn't spoken about it, it may have built, and I kind of would have sat with that feeling. Now I can't even remember what that was, so that's a brilliant example. Um, Jordan Peterson says that um, a couple needs 90 minutes of honest conversation a week for unity and being on the same page. That's only two episodes of Boer Sokofro, or whatever else you're into watching. That's Roger's favorite show. <laughs> I have no comments, <laughs> literally. But um, honesty, it sounds so elementary, but are you actually sharing what's going on? Are you actually saying what you feel, what, what, what your experience of life is, your expectations? Share those things and share them honest, honestly. And um, again, one of the, this was actually something Raj said early on in our marriage that has um, stuck with me so profoundly and it's shaped the way that we communicate with each other but very early on in our marriage I, we were driving home from work together and I was um, just really annoyed with someone at work they had sent me an email that was quite like um, basically calling me out for something that I had let the ball drop on something and I was ranting to Roger can you believe they would say this and you know I work so hard and this is what I get for this and going on and on and he's just quietly driving and not really saying anything and I was kind of like you know, when are you going to join my rant and like help me know, like help me along with saying how bad this person is? And he said, when we parked, and he said, you know, and I kind of said, well, what are you going to say? Like, come on, say something. And he said, you know, in our marriage, I want us to stand for truth rather than standing for each other. And I can see that there's another side of the story, and you are emotionally weighing up only your side, and I'm not going to let you do that. I mean, he said it in much kinder words, that sounds quite harsh, but it was that thing of standing for truth, not primarily just standing for this person. 
And then you become a, a kind of gospel outpost to that person to actually help them rightly view the world, not just jump in on their pity party whenever they decide to have it, but actually stand for truth in those moments. And of course you stand for each other and you stand up for each other, but there's the sense that you do that under the, a conscience that's guided by Christ, mm. which goes back to verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. It's still me, babe. Don't steal the mic. Oh, really? Yeah. Nearly done. So the, um, another really... <laughs> Submit to one another. <laughs> we have to color code the notes because otherwise he'll just charge and we'll get to the end. I'm like, I just stood here all the time. Um, the other one that we just wanted to remind us as a community is um, just removing any stigma from... Um, gospel-centered marriage counseling. You know, when you have a sports injury, you can go to a physio and you can do rehab. But we've learned recently through Roger seeing a physio, there is something called prehab, making sure that you don't get the injury in the first place. And seeing, uh, just sometimes seeing a gospel-centered marriage counselor is um, just so helpful to make sure that you're kicking the tires on those little ankle tap things that keep coming around, dealing with stuff that um, just, yeah, keeps tripping you up. Um, Another thing is planning, share your diaries, share your, your, um, your plans, what's going on, what, when do you plan on doing something, who are you doing it with, what time are you doing it, your life is one, and actually your, it sounds again so elementary, but we, a lot of couples just don't do that, so being better at planning, and then also sharing a, a vision for the kind of community that you as a couple are going to enjoy, who are you letting in to actually know you, who knows what you actually argue about, who knows what actually hurts in your marriage, who can actually say, hey guys, what about this? We've noticed this in you. We've got high walls and a lot of um, kind of isolation. Do people actually know your family and know your marriage well enough that they can speak encouragement and challenge into that space? So those are a few kind of just rattling off encouragement points. So you've got a vision for your marriage, but there's some undergirding values that Paul speaks into, and, and I don't think we can cover them all, but we're going to just speak to two that seem to thematically just be uh, saturated in this beautiful text. So what are some key values? Let's mention the first one, which is covenant as a priority over contract. Covenant over contract. Verse 31, Paul says he's quoting uh, Jesus, who's quoting uh, Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. United. And the two will become one flesh. This is the language of covenant. This is the language that speaks of two people coming together in a lifelong union that is basically or ought not to ever end. And the church has kind of, and the language of Jesus and the church is, is basically fundamentally covenantal throughout. The, the more you read the scriptures from the Old Testament, God is a covenantal God. God is a, a God who makes promises that he remains faithful to. And he puts into the life of followers of God this covenantal belief. And really at the center of marriage is this conviction of covenant, Christ saves us by a covenant. In, in verse 23, we see that he saved us. He, it was a covenant brought by his own blood. He paid with his own blood. And the scriptures have been waiting for this new covenant that would come about. And so into this, uh, this beautiful story of the gospel, into Ephesus, he says, actually, your marriage is also a covenant. It's a deep, lifelong commitment. Unfortunately, we live in a world where marriage has turned much more into a contract. 
Probably the most influential thing that happened that brought this about was what's called the no-fault divorce, no divorce ruling in 1970. You might not even have heard about this, but under uh, Governor Reagan in California, he was the first person to initiate the no-fault divorce ruling. And really what that meant was that for the first time in history, a person could get divorced with no real reason besides the fact that it's no longer working. Up until then, divorce happened because somebody was unfaithful or there were a bunch of other really stringent rulings like felony or crime or things like that that brought about, and it was really based on a biblical Judeo-Western view that you don't get divorced unless there is a biblical basis for it. In come the no-fault divorce ruling, and really what happened when that happened was that marriage became a contract, and not only that, marriage got redefined. It's such a fascinating thing. If you want to read more on this, you can read Carl Truman, um, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. But really what happened was, was that once this ruling came about, marriage was no longer attached to a biblical view. Marriage was now about two people making a contract to one another. It's the very same ruling that gave rise to the ability for two people of the same sex to consider ever getting married together. Because now it's the right to have a contract that commits us or binds us together for as long as we choose. Up until that point, there was no such thing. And that's what's given rise, I think, to more and more people, you know, standing at the altar at their wedding day and really not making lifelong commitments to each other, but sharing how they feel about each other and really basically swapping their, their speeches that are meant to come afterwards and putting them into their vows. And they really become this kind of mixed up confusion sharing how much you love each other and how sweet you are when you walk in that funny way. But really, your vows were made to be a covenant that would be lifelong between a man and a woman for the rest of their lives until death do them part. Jonathan Sachs, talking about covenant, he says this, in a covenant, two or more individuals, each respecting the dignity and integrity of the other, come together in a bond of love and trust to share their interests sometimes even to share their lives by pledging their faithfulness to one another, to do together what neither can achieve alone. A contract is a transaction. A covenant is a relationship. Or to put it slightly differently, a contract is about interests. A covenant is about identity. It's about you and me coming together to form us. That's why contracts benefit, but covenants transform. To be sure, a marriage may have the external form of a contract, but its inner logic is that of covenant. And uh, when we view marriage in the light of a covenant over a contract, it um, influences a lot of the ways that we um, interact with one another. And the main thing that it can influence is how we conflict with one another. And so I'm just going to quickly speak about a conflict in the light of covenant. Um, this may or may not be a dirty sock from our bedroom floor. It certainly doesn't fit me. It doesn't. I really thought it was yours. <laughs> now that I take it out, this was definitely a child's sock. We'll still argue about we'll it, just, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find a way to fight about that. But um, if, say, for instance, this is Roger's stinky sock that I found on the floor. really thought it was yours. Um, and I could see the sock on the floor, and I could think, you know, actually, this really annoys me. This it makes me feel... Um, uncared for, unloved, like you expect me to pick up all the stuff, you just do whatever you want. This is and getting very close to home, by the way. <laughs> let you, it out, Nick, <laughs> let it out. 
And um, in fact, yeah, this sock stands for all that's wrong, really, with your selfishness, and this is a ma major problem in our marriage. And what we tend to do is we lift up the problem, and you can think it probably isn't a sock for you, maybe it is, but maybe it's um, a habit that, you, that really annoys you, or just a whatever it is, you know what you thought about, you can imagine it. And what we tend to do is we put it in the middle of each other, and even quite subtly, we push it towards the other person and say, quite subtly, this is actually your fault, and so you need to deal with it. But instead, when, there is, when we're thinking in light of covenant, when we're conflicting with each other, what we do is we shoulder to shoulder, come, we come together, and we, we put the, the issue out in front of us. And we're basically saying, we're together, we're on a team, and there is the issue, it's out there. Even if it may have started with you or started with me, actually, this bond is primarily unbreakable. We're in a covenant together, and we're going to fight this issue together rather than fighting each other over the issue. And what happens when there's covenant as the main grid of viewing things, there's massive creativity that comes about because you're going, we're going to be together. Whatever happens on the other side of this conflict, I've got a date with you. On the other side of this argument, I've got a date with you. In 50 years' time, I've got a date with you. Because we're in covenant with each other. And we want to make sure that, um, that we're still loving each other and arguing creative, creatively in the, um, under the influence, under the, the grid of covenant. So good. We've got a date together soon. <laughs> we need one after preparing a sermon together. <laughs> Let me tell you that. You need a date after that. Lastly, in terms of a value, is this value of sacrifice over satisfaction. And it's in this point that I bring the sort of big elephant in the room, the concept of submission. Um, because Paul writes in verse 25, and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And of course, in verse 22, he said, Wives, submit to your husbands um, uh, as you do to the Lord. And so there's this, this sense of this big word, submission. But I think we need to remind ourselves firstly what Nick's shared already, that this was revolutionary from the start. Women are being addressed. Women are being dignified. They're being spoken of. And most importantly, Paul is looking at the men in this community, and he didn't know necessarily of all the gender wars and all the complexity that would come 2,000 years later. And he's looking at these men, and he's saying, Mana, listen to me. This whole way that things have been going, not okay. This whole story of women not having the dignity they deserve, not okay. And you see, what often happens as we read this passage is we just go straight to our sort of postmodern view of it. And our first thing is we go, patriarchy, it's disgusting. I can't believe it. But, but Paul didn't have that in mind at all. The other way we might go is we just go, it's ancient, it's dead, it's old literature. How could you even consider it? Come into the, the modern world. You're so behind the times. We read it through the sense of men's rights, or we read it through the lens of an archaic, outdated way of viewing it. But the Jesus way, where service and submission means greatness, this is the Jesus who washes feet. Remember, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who washes feet, he dignified women and children in a culture that was unfathomable. unfathomable. And ultimately, he submits himself out of reverence to the Father, 
by giving himself in death on the cross to us. This is not your stereotypical view of submission. What comes to mind when you hear the word submission, I don't know, but normally it's some power-hungry junkie who's feeding off of some sense of, uh, you know, mismanaged uh, pain from the past, who's now dominating uh, women and making sure that they submit. This is not what Paul has in mind at all. He paints a picture of Jesus, of the one who dies on a cross for the good of others, who sacrificially serves and dignifies people. And it's into that context that he looks at the men and he says, guys, Listen to me, just like Jesus was willing to take the bullet, I want you to get ready, you might need to take a bullet. Just like Jesus was the first to die, if you're leading a family, you better get ready, you're going to be the first to die. You need to wake up to the fact that what you've got in your hands, if you've got a wife or a family, is precious and your call is to be ready to die for them. This thing of submission has been so skewed in a kind of postmodern world and, and in so many of the gender wars that I think we miss out on that. In 15 years of pastoral work, I have never had one woman come to me and say this. This husband of mine, he's killing me. He takes way too much initiative. He plans date nights. He thinks ahead about how to love and care for our family. It's driving me insane. He sacrifices his time and energy for the good of our family. Can you believe it? He lovingly desires to provide for us. And then, just get this. Just listen to what an absolute moron he is. When tough decisions come, he includes me as his wife. He makes sure that we both get consensus. We work together towards a great decision. And then you know what? When we make the decision, he says, I'll take the blame if it was a dud decision. He just keeps giving himself. You know, on top of that, this annoying sense of self-protection and protective love over us as a family just keeps coming out of him. If there's a physical threat, he just wants to look after us. He desperately wants to protect and ensure we're safe. He's mad. He's just too much. He keeps thinking of how we can nurture our kids to be both tender and tough to love and care about others. He reads books on parenting and how to raise children. What a loser. <laughs> and he sometimes speaks of our family as becoming a blessing to other people and our kids becoming strong and brave and full of faith. And he wants to bless the church. He wants to bless the city. He wants to bless the nations of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know where I found this loser. Can't handle him. I've never met a wife who struggles with a man who takes initiative, who uses his influence to serve and love people, who wants to become a sacrificial, loving person who gives of himself to love and lead his family, to bring his wife along so that she feels like every gift and every strength that she's got is free to be released on the world. I've never met a woman. You see, what happens is we think of the worst case scenario and we slap this text on it and we realize that men typically tend to do three things, avoid, abuse, abandon. And to those men, it's a problem. Avoid, just, just pretend the problem's not happening. You know, get all stonewallish or become the rhino or become the porcupine and basically just kind of shy away or, or just get 
crazy wild, get abusive with words, with emotions, with, with physical uh, dynamics if need be, or just leave, just abandon, just do what, 20, uh, what, what most of South African dads are doing. 25% of dads in, in homes in the Eastern Cape, about uh, 50% of dads in homes in the Western Cape. Just leave, just up and go. I know there's lots of uh, political and financial dynamics behind those realities. The point is, if men loved and led like Jesus, I don't think women would feel patronized or disempowered. They'd simply express their God-given contribution to the world in partnership. It's not a power game. It's laying down our rights and power in service to each other. And so, yes, I do believe that God calls men to lovingly lead their families. I do believe Paul's saying that. But you know what? I don't believe that any wife or woman should ever feel like they're squashed under the reality of that. In fact, they should feel like right-hand, left-hand women who are right next to them, expressing all their gifts to the point that you should never be going, who's in charge there? Because leadership doesn't say, I'm in charge. It says, let's go. And how do we accomplish what God's called us to? So good. Before we kind of land in the power for marriage, because I think we're hearing all of this and going, it's all well and good, but how do we attain this? We're going to get to the power for marriage. But um, a lot of you may have been hearing Rog speak about the, this submission dynamic. And remember that this uh, a few lines earlier, we've heard submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's not only a call to submit only on, on, on a wife, but you might be saying, okay, that's all well and good, but what if? What if my husband isn't ready to take a bullet or he's not actually following Jesus all that well and um, not prioritizing me or our family? I just don't feel like I can submit to that. What then? What if you're not getting this perfect um, version of it? Which none of us are, for what it's worth. Yes. <laughs> and that's my first point is that there is actually no perfect spouse. Sorry. And that's okay. Still the first point. <laughs> Could have just read down in the notes. You would have seen no perfect spouse. But anyway. Obviously, only read your parts. <laughs> I really am getting hot. But um, at the heart of the gospel is this thing of initiative. The God that we serve is a God that reached down into humanity and he took initiative. His movement towards us, Jesus on the cross, Christ incarnate coming to earth was not a response to something that we had done. He didn't go up there and say, I'm going to watch for the right time. And when you guys have all done enough, and I think this is all going to be worth my while, I'm going to come down. Guess what? I'm going to down a cross. Guess what? I'm going to lavishly show my love for you. No. He came down. He initiated towards us. And so when we wait for our spouse, and it can be both ways. I'm not only speaking to the wives here. It can be both ways. When we wait for the spouse to do some kind of extravagant love or change themselves in some way and then say, and then I will, that's not a picture of gospel love. Gospel love says, I will go first. At the heart of the gospel is this call to love people that are difficult to love. And if you have been married or are married, you will know that loving your spouse can be really hard sometimes. And that's the call. It's an expression of gospel love. For most wives, but not for you. <laughs> Our spouse is not the fountainhead that springs us into obedience. We don't look to them and say, if you do X, Y, and Z, then I will follow God in this call to love you, submit, uh, serve, humbly love, um, put your needs first. And so we say, I will go first. And a little aside here is that 
if for whatever reason you do find that your spouse is not ideally where you would love them to be, spiritually, emotionally, you know, often what, what we've seen in quite a few couples, actually, we've seen couples praying, uh, uh, one spouse, one member of the, the marriage, praying for the other one. Oh, God, just let this person start coming to church, start loving you, start taking you seriously. I wish my wife would join a life group. I wish they would start building some friendships. I wish my husband would start reading the, the word, start praying more. And then we see God begins to answer those prayers. But what sadly sometimes happens is that the other person who was praying those prayers didn't realize how much of their identity they were finding in a version of victimhood, which says, oh, I wish I could come to church, but my wife just doesn't want to come. Oh, I wish I could get involved in, you know, really serving in this way, but really held back. Or we just not into building community in that way because, you know, he just very isolated. Don't let your spouse hold you back from obedience and your own uh, discipleship. Another little caveat is that there is only a call to submission when it is within gospel um, fellowship. There's nothing out of the bounds of the gospel or of Jesus that we would say, yeah, that's submit submission. So if there is ever kind of, you know, where you're worried, call to uh, submit to something that is not um, you know, loving, where maybe it's even like you're worried that there's abuse involved. That's where community is so important to bring those trusted voices around. We're definitely not speaking about that. So it's a, it's a challenging talk, right? And uh, we're going to land right now with this answer to, well, we've got the vision, we've got the values, there's lots more we could say. I'd advise um, Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage is a lot of where we get this stuff, and wow, go read that if you're needing to uh, refresh your views on marriage, and, and singleness for that matter, because the question needs to be asked, well, where's the power for marriage? Well, the power for marriage is in the same place you get the power for singleness. But Paul says it in this verse uh, 32, where he says, this is a profound mystery. Now listen to this confusing double talk. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each should, uh, uh, however, each one of you must love his wife as he, uh, as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So he kind of doubles over. He goes, um, yes, this is marriage talk, but I'm actually talking about the church, but actually you must do it. And he's kind of going, this is exactly what it's meant to feel like. You're meant to feel this, this amazing sense of toing and froing in the gospel, toing and froing between loving people and loving God, uh, being loved by people and letting God love you. And he's always got this amazing sense that primarily the fountainhead of your life is not that you will have your partner save you. It's not that as a single, you will one day find someone. It's not that as a divorcee, you will one day find the perfect person, or even that you are now defined by your past relationships. You are defined by the gospel. You're defined by the amazing love of Jesus that 2,000 years ago, he did what you could never have dreamt of. He came and he fulfilled the amazing prophecies that God would bring springs in the wasteland, that he would renew things in a way that we never imagined, that our worst and our most broken would become opportunities for life and love. That he would do what he did for Abraham and that he would call things that are not as though they were and he would speak into being things that are not as though they were. It is an amazing ability that the gospel has. And so whatever side of this marriage conversation you find yourself or whether you're a slap bang in the middle, here's the call from Paul and from God himself. Go to the source.
Stop thinking that a person will do for you what only Jesus can do. Maybe you're new to the faith, this whole thing. Stop thinking that the church or your spouse or a future person could save you. Only Christ can do that. And don't argue with me. Maybe you want to go back to the scriptures and read John again and look at the man, Jesus, and look at who he is and what he's done and begin to find yourself caught up in him. That's where we're meant to be primarily married. That's where we're primarily meant to find our happiness. That is our joy. We're going to take communion. The band are going to come up, and they're going to play while we take communion. And I just want to ask you, I know we've gone a little over. Apologies if you're here for the first time, and somebody told you we'd be done by 10.50. We're not. We're going to be done by about just before 11. But hopefully this time will help us to see the gospel, to see the beauty of who God is and what he's done for us. Today, I want to make this appeal simply to you to build your life upon the gospel of Jesus and the good life that's redefined by the gospel. Too many married couples, I think, are trying to, they've got themselves in an echo chamber searching for the happiest life they can find. Maybe it's on another continent. Maybe it's in owning another home or buying that next thing or getting their kids through that schooling or accomplishing that. And Paul writes and he says, stop searching for this so-called good life that's been created by our culture. You could have it all and still have a soul that is not soaring on eagle's wings. You could still have a soul that isn't being renewed by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who brings new life into places that are dead. It's at the communion table that we go to the one who died and we hold on to that, that bread and we hold on to that wine and we realize he died and I, and I have this tension. I'm toing and froing in the gospel. He's the one who died for me. But I know, he's, I know he rose. I know he rose. He's a, he's a life giver. So, so even if my marriage feels like it's on death's door, I hold on and I choose slowly because he died so I don't have to. I know that I feel like dying sometimes because I'm so lonely, but I hold on because he died alone and resurrection's coming. I don't know where. I don't know exactly how, but I know he's the only answer and I, I rock between my loneliness and his resurrection love. And I'm torn and I'm, and I'm pulled and I don't rush away from communion. I let the deepest, realest parts of my soul connect with the love of God. And as you chew and as you crush and as you drink of that uh, metaphoric blood, you remind yourself that He is risen. And you let the pain and the realities of your life get absorbed into the cross, into His beautiful, beautiful love. So I'm going to ask you to come and take the elements. I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do. But as you're walking up, I'm going to share a few things that we could repent of. And I'm going to ask you to stand right now because I know it's hard to be the first person. And you just listen. Maybe stay focused on Jesus. I'm going to ask you to start walking. Leaders, take the lead so that people follow. And listen to me as I share some things you might want to do as you take communion together. Maybe you want to repent of sinful self-reliance. Maybe you want to rejoice. After that, rejoice in Jesus' self-sacrifice. Maybe after that, you want to receive His renewing love. Maybe after that, you want to renew your trust in Him. 
Repent of sinful self-reliance. Rejoice in Jesus' self-sacrifice. Receive His renewing love. Renew your trust in Him. When you're ready, you pray, you take the elements in your own time. I'm gonna let Nick's pray for us. Go for it. God represented in this tiny cup of grape juice, your blood, and this cracker, your body. We cling to the power of the gospel, the only power we know that can change our hearts, bring us to new life, and bring new life to our relationships, marriages, friendships, family relationships. God, we know that sometimes it feels easy to submit to people and serve people out there, but sometimes the relationships closest to us are the hardest ones to really love, really submit, really initiate, really take initiative. Jesus, this morning we want to receive your, the power of, of your Holy Spirit, receive the power of the gospel freshly. We remind ourselves that you took initiative towards us. Maybe you're realizing that possibly freshly, maybe even for the first time today, that there is a God who loves you and who is taking initiative towards you. He's seeking you out, calling you by name, not based on anything you've done. He's not responding to you. He's moving toward you in perfect love. And we get to just respond to him. And God, we pray for the marriages in this community, for us as we, as we remind ourselves of the power of your gospel. Would your gospel come and transform us as individuals, as families, in our marriages? And we pray that we would be um, a gospel outpost, that our, our marriages would be uh, reflections of your love to a watching world who so desperately needs a fresh vision and a fresh example of what love is. So we receive this morning, God.